What's going on, everybody? This is Patriot Underground here. Now, before we get started tonight with the show, I want to say a few words on behalf of the company that I have partnered with to help folks protect their financial resources as we enter into the eye of the storm. Now, I don't think I need to remind everybody that this financial crash has been predicted for years, and now we are seeing everything unfold exactly the way the real financial advisors, the real professionals and experts out there have been telling us that it was going to. We have a brief window of opportunity here, folks, and I highly recommend that everybody get on board. We just saw Silicon Valley Bank go down last month, and just yesterday, First Republic was the second largest bank collapse in U.S. history. And let me tell you something, folks, we're not done. We're not even close to being done. This is a consolidation move. The big banks are eating up the little banks. They're preparing to roll out their central bank digital currency. The entire system is going to collapse. Oh, and by the way, dozens of regional bank stocks plummeted today as this banking crisis continues to gain momentum. All of them were down between 10 and close to 40% just today. So I urge everybody out there to seize this opportunity. Don't wait until it's too late. Protect your financial resources, roll over your 401k and your IRAs into precious metal backed, into gold backed currency. That is the wave of the future, folks. We know that this is a sound investment. It's been proven over and over and over again. And I can guarantee you that when the market crashes, gold and silver are going to skyrocket in price. Now, I am not a financial expert, as you know, but I have had financial experts on my show who have said exactly that. And I'm sure you've heard many other trusted sources out there warning folks of what's to come. Now is the time. Don't wait. Seize this opportunity, folks. Click the link in the description. And I guarantee you, folks, this will be the best financial decision that you've ever made. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening. God bless and Godspeed. Enjoy the show. Patriot out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Patriot Underground. Today is May 12th, 2023. Thank you so much for joining me, folks, to discover the truth beneath the surface. I really do appreciate everyone out there taking the time to listen. So today, it's my pleasure to welcome a new guest to the show, a gentleman who's been involved in the truth movement for decades. He's published many, many books on the topics related to his areas of expertise, the latest of which is the newest installation in his uh, Sands of Time series. So we're going to talk about that a little bit tonight. But Dr. Sean David Morton is a man of many talents and incredible knowledge in a wide array of areas that we're going to get into tonight, including UFOs, portals, time travel, non-terrestrial presence, among many, many other topics as well. So I'm sure this is going to be an interesting conversation that we can all learn from in our quest to better understand the truth beneath the surface. So, Dr. Sean David Morton, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you, sir. Thank you, Patriot. It's a pleasure to be here. Nice to nice to chat with you, finally. Fantastic. Well, you, you know, this is our first conversation. Okay. And as is typically my custom, I wanted to give you an opportunity, even though you're very well known, uh, to provide a little bit of intel, or I guess you could say background about you to the audience, uh, just to kind of give them a sense for who you are. Uh, I know you you have a long, long resume, so we can maybe, you know, hit the highlights. Uh, but just in order to set the stage for our discussion, so you could tell us a little bit about your history, uh, your your career, and what brought you here. Um, okay, it's, uh, uh, gosh, I hate this part. Um, 
Sorry. Okay. I, you know, I, I mean, I went to. If Stanford, you come back for I, a second one, we can skip it. Okay. No, I mean, I, I I went to Stanford. I hated Stanford, so I transferred to USC. Uh, you know, got two degrees at the University of Southern California. Uh, got my doctorate out of uh, uh, McGill University up in uh, up in Canada. So it's an international uh, international PhD in uh, therapeutic counseling, and uh, you know, which is basically therapeutic psych. Uh, I got a when I was still at USC, I sold the script to Buck Rogers and, uh, you know, they backed a bunch of money up to my house and, uh, it was a two part thing, which was before it got shot, the show was canceled. I was in, uh, rock music videos, doing concepts for videos with uh, high five productions over at MGM, uh, in the early eighties. Uh, I was good friends with Gene Rodberry for a long time. Uh, Gene had optioned a TV series we were going to do, which was oddly enough called the guardians. And uh, Writers Guild went on strike, and actually SAG went on strike first, and then Writers Guild went on strike, and so uh, nobody could work for years after that. Um, I was in the nightclub business and uh, the restaurant business. I had a, a, a couple of businesses called the Health Huts, which were soup, salad, sandwiches, smoothies, you know, healthy food. Wow, I had no idea about that. Yeah, and then I was, uh, 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 I was a really famous disc jockey, and... Uh, so we had a club actually. Uh, so during the week I was DJing at a kind of a top 40 proletariat bar uh, in, in uh, Torrance uh, called Hands. There's like 90 of them all across the United States. Wow. I was a uh, disc jockey of the year actually at Hands, And then on the weekends we had a, a club that I started with some friends of mine at USC. That was, uh, we used to have like 2,500 to 3,000 people on a Friday, Saturday night called Vertigo in downtown Los Angeles. Uh, we sold that to Prince actually. And, uh, who was an interesting guy. I had some interesting stories about Prince and, uh, but yeah, I was working like a weird fetish club on Sunday nights and then vertigo on the weekends and then, and then, uh, uh, hula hands, uh, during the week. So I was playing top 40, then I was playing dance music then I was playing, you know, like industrial, weird industrial house stuff that came out of the black forest in Germany and, and all that. So, uh, um, and when was that? What, what decade was that? It was in, it was in, in the eighties. Okay. And my, uh, uh, the lady that, uh, had the lease on our club in downtown Los Angeles, she heard we were going to open up another club. And so she, uh, she yanked our lease and, you know, called the fire department and shut the place down. We had 2,800 people on Saturday night and, uh, she ran them all out of there. And I looked at my partners and said, well, we got all this money saved up to open the other club. Right. And they were like, what money? And it's it snorted it all up their nose. And <laughs> that I was, was the eighties, right? Ah, yeah, this is just bad. And, um, and I had a girl I loved very much and she upped and moved to England without her telling me. And then oddly enough, that started me on my entire quest to kind of look, look for God. And, uh, when I was 19 years old, I lived with a, a very powerful uh, Hindu Swami. Uh, very famous in Northern India. His name was Swami Sri Jaya. And uh, I learned all kinds of stuff from him, you know, how to read auras, how to, you know, uh, do psychic stuff, how to, uh, uh, you know, Hatha yoga, you know, the whole thing. And then, uh, uh, so I actually, I went to India for a year. I actually went to India and Nepal. I, I actually lived in uh, Dharamsala at, uh, in Northern India, actually with the Dalai Lama in residence. And that was cool because I set up a whole little program for the orphans there which later on was actually taken over by Benedict Cumberbatch. So he's a really good guy. And, uh, and I think it's funny that, uh, you know, Benedict has gone on to be Dr. Strange and, you know, they, they shoot Dr. Strange in Nepal 
And, uh, you know, of course, he was in northern India, basically teaching all the little kids there at Dharamsala. Uh, basically, on the orders from the Dalai Lama, I lived in a I lived in a monastery uh, at the foot of Mount Everest called Tangbache. They were black hat Karmakegi monks there. Monks there. Sorry about the problem speaking. I'm going to have to probably uh, drink yeah, my throat to you. If you need a break, just let me know. I'll jump in. All right. I've had. Uh, uh, so. Um, yeah, my my uh my dad was a fighter pilot and fighter pilot ace in Korea, uh became uh, vice president of TRW. Uh, uh, we basically ran the uh you know TRW at that time was doing all the stuff for the for the the Mercury, Apollo, and Gemini. So I grew up with uh, astronauts. Uh, you know, guys would come over and swim at the pool at the house, and uh, became good friends with uh with all these guys. Matter of fact, my uh. uh my little brother's godfather is Gene Cernan, who was the last man on the moon of Apollo 17. And my god, godfather is, was Dave Scott. And he drove the, uh, the lunar oh, rover. From the moon, wow. So, okay. Uh, my mom was a kind of a supermodel who, you know, who taught uh, other models. And then we got very much political. My parents were divorced. And then my uh, mom remarried a very, very wealthy businessman in Northern California. So, uh, um, you know, so I was raised in Atherton, which is a very kind of bougie community up there. And uh, as I said, I went to Stanford and then got and, and then transferred down to USC. As the uh, as the old tube song goes, uh, all the rich kids living in the ghetto, but living in Pacific Heights is a much better. So uh, uh, that was about that. And uh, uh, we restarted the uh, this kind of the political stuff. I'm not sure where you're going to take this, but, you know, the political stuff we restarted with the. Uh, uh, in 1984, you know, Ronald Reagan was too liberal for us. And uh, we started up a, a third party, which, which was the, uh, which is still around. And it was on the kind of the bones of the American independent party. And it was called the populist party, uh, which is the, uh, the political party that, uh, that Thomas Jefferson actually started in the early 1800s. And uh, so my mother ran for vice president. Uh, the president can presidential candidate was Bob Richards, who was a a Wheaties box guy. He, he was on the uh, on cover Wheaties and he was a Olympic uh, pole vaulting champion. So this was in, uh, in the 80, in 1984, you're saying your mom was running for vice president on that ticket. Yeah, she was vice president. She, she ran for vice president. We got like almost 400,000 votes in California. We were the number one, uh, number one third party. And wow. okay. uh, it's still around actually as the, as the independent party, which was then put back together by Ross Perot was the reform party. Uh, you might hear a lot about it again, because if what I think is going to happen and uh, you've got George Soros backing Ron DeSantis and I'll, I'll give you some revelations on that. And then if they split the vote and if Trump has to run because he's got one last chance to be president because he's so old, uh, he'll he'll run as an independent and split the vote. And uh, Soros's plan seems to be to grease in a Democrat after that. Hmm. Uh, so, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how everything kind of falls apart. Uh, so from there, I came back to the States. Uh, I started doing, uh, I got back to the States. I got my old job back DJing again. Um, and I started up the, uh, uh, the Delphi associates newsletter. Uh, this was actually in the, then in the early nineties, uh, actually in, in 89, uh, just going through progression here in 1989, we did a, a really interesting, uh, research project on the Dulce Archuleta Mesa in New Mexico, because we had interviewed a, a, a pair of, uh, uh, Army Corps engineers who claimed to have actually built the place out of a uh, out of a huge natural cavern that was there. Um, 
then it got into kind of a UFO fight. This is kind of some UFO infighting here because uh, uh, a guy by the name of Bill Moore, who's a very bad guy, um, he made his name to fame because he was helping Charles Burlett's, the language tape guy. This goes back a long ways. But uh, they wrote a couple of books. They were uh, Burlett's was fascinated by the Bermuda Triangle. So they did a bunch of research on the Bermuda Triangle, all of which is wrong, by the way, but because I can tell you exactly what the Bermuda Triangle is and uh, why it functions the way it does. But uh, if you want to make a note of that, we can talk about that later. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Um, he uh, uh, At that time, you had, uh, of course, uh, Bill Cooper and uh, John Lear, and then uh, there was a rift between them because Bill Cooper just started lying about a bunch of stuff, and, and uh, you know John Lear was calling him on his fibs. And uh, so they did a report on Dulce and this all had to do with uh, also a man named Paul Benowitz who lived in, uh, who lived in Albuquerque, New Mexico, who had something called the Thunder Corporation who claimed that he across his computer was somehow in touch with an alien who was working at the, at the Dulce base. And uh, uh, Bill Moore admitted that he was a, a disinformation agent for the, uh, for the CIA. And um or whatever, and you know, one of the Five Eyes agencies, and then said that he made up completely the entire story about Dulce, and uh, you know about the Dulce Wars and the conflict at Dulce and all the stuff that went on at Dulce, really? and uh, um, so taking him up on his challenge that he just made this stuff up, um, I started working on uh, uh, on uh, documentaries. I actually in college I was also working at KCT. And uh, I worked on a documentary that was done by my girlfriend at the time, uh, 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 Linda Lou Crosby, whose sister was um, Kathy Lee Crosby. And uh, Kathy Lee was dating Richard Roundtree. You know, <laughs> he's a bad mother. I'm talking about Shaft. And uh, <laughs> um, but we got nominated for a, for an Emmy for a documentary on women's sports called Fair Play. And uh, when I was at KCT, I actually pitched the idea of bringing Doctor Who to the United States. And uh, uh, with a little editing and whatever else, they finally took me up on it. So I'm the guy that brought Doctor Who to the States. And uh, uh, some years later, I was actually asked to work on the retrofit of Doctor Who, which uh, got taken over by, I think, Russell Davies or whatever. But BBC finally stepped in, realizing they were missing a, uh, you know, missing a huge cash cow for them. And uh, uh, so anyway, so uh, uh, 1990, I work as a co-director and co-producer with Joe Randazzo who sank about, uh, sorry, I'm sort of slumping down on my chair here. Uh, uh, that's all right. Joe had a, uh, he, he wanted to put a documentary together. So my pitch on the documentary was, well, if you know, if you believe in UFOs, then here's what they have to say. And so it became uh, UFO contactees. And uh, with about $350,000 of Joe's money, we uh, traveled all around the world. We collected about 600 hours of footage with UFO contactees, abductees, scientists, researchers. Somebody had a dog bark to the UFO. We went out and talked to him. And we also, we, we toured around with uh, Lieutenant Colonel Wendell Stevens, uh, who had his own problems with the law. But uh, to this day, I think he's written, uh, he wrote like 60 books. Uh, each book of a UFO case, he turned into a book. Uh, his whole library got bought for like nothing by I think John Rao or whatever it was. But uh, uh, so we traveled around Wonderful. We went to Billy Myers Farm in Switzerland. We went up and down Italy. Uh, we were actually in the fields when the modern crop circles started appearing in uh, the Salisbury Plain in England. Went to France, went to Canada, you know, went to all these different places, which made me 
And this is a tenuous <laughs> title at best, but possibly maybe the greatest UFO researcher on earth because I was the only one that had actually gone out and talked to people. So, you know, and this got me attacked by almost everybody in the UFO field because they didn't have the finances. I mean, the great thing about what I've done with my life is that I've gotten paid, uh, you know, to work for hard copy and unsolved mysteries and, uh, uh, uh strange universe. And I, you know, I was there at the beginning of the, of the start of the sci-fi channel. We had the first original show on sci-fi, uh, which was called mysteries from beyond the other dominion with Dr. Franklin rule. And, yeah. We would investigate, you know, cheap stuff like, oh, our, our clams from Venus. Look, we're interviewing a clam here on the beach. You know, that sort of crazy stuff. <laughs> and uh, uh, But that started sci-fi. I had a show called Declassified, which we did a pilot on. And all sci-fi had any money to do at that time was run reruns. And they, they bumped Declassified uh, because they got the money to buy Land of the Giants, if you remember that old show. But uh, oh, yeah. Land of the Giants. And then uh, primarily because of that, uh, I was asked by, uh, excuse me, I was asked by Bill Siegel. Uh, who approached me at my lecture and handed me a card saying he was president of Chris Craft Industries. And I handed his card back to him and said, well, thanks, but no thanks. I'm not interested in buying a wooden boat. And uh, he said, no, my brother and I just bought a TV network and we want your help putting it on the air. So there I was uh, founding UPN, United Paramount Network, uh, which later got bought me. Uh, it was called uh, the CW and their flagship show at the time uh, just so happened to be a uh, Star Trek Voyager. So, and it was really the renaissance for Star Trek, which is great with me, because as I said, I was friends with Broadbury for a long time. And uh, at that time, I think they had, they had Enterprise going, they had Deep Space Nine going, uh, they had Voyager going. I mean, so the entire Paramount lot, you got to wander around, mostly on stage nine, uh, you know, and hang out, you know, sitting on the bridge of Voyager and watching Jerry Ryan and, uh, you know, uh, Catherine Mulgrew rehearse. Uh, so that was fun. And then... Um, so we had a show called Strange Universe, uh, Strange Universe, which was airing like four nights a week and in essence became the uh, uh, the template for what later became The Daily Show with Don Stewart and, uh, you know, all these nightly news magazines. But it allowed me to research, you know, Area 51 and Chupacabras down in Puerto Rico and, you know, all kinds of crazy weird stuff, which then led to my working for hard copy and uh, exposing all kinds of things there like uh, TWA Flight 800. Uh, the JFK Jr. assassination, which it was, uh, the Princess Diana assassination, which it was, and uh, um, and we actually got in so much trouble. And I worked for Geraldo. We had a show called Now it Can Be Told. The messed up part about working for Hard Copy was um, we did the first national stories on the Phoenix Lights. Everybody hears about it now, but when it first came out, it had no national publicity whatsoever. Uh, we were the first people to interview Bob Lazar in 1990, whose story has changed substantially since he first came out. Now, were, were you on the air uh, doing interviews or were you behind the scenes with hard copy? No, it was, on, it was all behind. It was, hard copy was all behind the scenes. Okay. Most, most TV. I do time. remember that show. Yeah. And uh, but the president of the network uh, or, or of that division, uh, whose name was Frank Gifford, no relation to other you know USC football, Monday Night Football guy. Uh, basically came down and spoke to our executive producer, Lisa Gregorish, and said, what are you doing with Sean Morton and Wayne Darwin? These guys, you can't just let them run around and tell the truth. And uh, she's like, what do you mean? He said, well, look, you know, we're, we were number two in the syndicated ratings at that time, right behind, and we were, we were the lead out uh, to Entertainment Tonight. And uh, uh, we were huge. 
And he says, you can't have these guys basically telling the truth. I want a show about nothing. I want to cash in on entertainment tonight. And I want a nothing show. I want, uh, I want Jennifer Anderson's hair and movie stars. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. um, we were going to do a whole segment. We stopped the whole thing. We had Don LaFontaine, who was the announcer, you know, the, the movie guy announcer was like in a world, there's a man with a dog in a town, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. And it was called the X-Man. And we'd shot a guy with a, you know, fedora and a, and a trench coat, you know, lighting a cigarette on his, uh, you know, in a back alley somewhere. And, uh, we were doing all kinds of crazy stuff and they took us off the air because of me and because of, uh, because we were doing true investigations into stuff that mattered. That's and, right. uh, which then led to Geraldo. And we worked on a show called now can be told. We got that show taken off the air too. Uh, what else? It just goes on and on, you know, tripping from one, from one gig to another, uh, to be able to, uh, just find out super wow, your life story is impressive and we're only in the nineties. Yeah, it goes on. Sounds from like there. several lifetimes. My goodness. Yeah, and then from, but from there also, uh, uh, beginning in 91 is when I started going out to, uh, area 51. And I, I took a friend of mine who was a reporter for the LA times, uh, Shannon Sands. And, uh, uh, there was a gang of people that were there before me, like Maria Hayakawa and Gary Schultz and Anthony Hilder and these guys. And they'd been going out and they said, man, you got to come out. You know, they fly these things every Wednesday night. So they were actually flying UFOs on a schedule where the sun would go down usually on Wednesday night. They'd zip around for a while until about 930. And then uh, they would come up again at about 450 a.m. the next morning. And uh, so we were getting all kinds of footage and photographs and all kinds of interesting things. And uh, the first time I was out there, we, our car got swooped by a saucer. I mean, this thing came in on its edge in the road and then flattened out. It was about this, the width of the road, about 60 feet or so. And then myself, my buddy Jeff chased after this thing. And then it came after us and, and it, it, it made this sound like a Tibetan bell, a ringing sound. And then it, and then it began to glow and we got sucked into the penumbra of this glow, which made us deathly ill for about two weeks or so. Doctors said we had radiation poisoning, which quite possibly could have led to, uh, um, the throat cancer that I'm recovering from. Is that the same kind of glow that, you know, is typical when you see the, you know, if you go ahead and Google image UFOs, you see that, that those lights coming down from sort of the center of the craft. Is that yeah. what yeah, you're talking it's, about? It's, it's the, it's the, it's a 360 degree, um, uh, gravity field that's, that's created by the, uh, uh, you know, by the, uh, by the engines inside the ship. And, uh, they, there's three gravity amplifiers on the bottom of these things. And, uh, when one is, is working it just floats on the magnetic field of the earth which is why they're so jumpy because they're they're surfing an invisible magnetic wave and then it kind of turns sideways and they turn on all three gravity amplifiers and it reaches into interdimensional space and it grabs over there which is where i want to go it bends space and time really uh to wrap around you then you turn off the gravity amplifiers and you just go and you appear where you want to be we used to watch them do that all the time i mean they would be in one part of the sky and on camera, these things that disappear and appear in another part of the sky within about a 20th of a second. Wow. Um, and the uh, the big question was that I kept asking, because I wasn't interested in the, I kept telling people it's not about the aliens, it's about the fact that we've got anti-gravity. And if we have anti-gravity, then that's it. I mean, then you conquer time, you conquer space, you conquer energy problems, you know, you're, you're moving to a, a, a whole new evolutionary plank for mankind. And uh, 
wars would be impossible because you you could just create a giant energy field over a city and you know nuclear weapons or whatever would just bounce off <laughs> out of the field. We do have something like that over Southern California, which they're they're not going to tell you about. But um, so I got buzzed by this saucer, and uh, we made the LA Times uh, front page. LA Times first time ever. It, it had been a local story in Nevada with George Knapp on Channel 8 and, you know, Bob Lazar and John Lear and Bill Cooper and all that, but it never got, everybody knew what it was if you lived in Las Vegas, but it never broke into national media until I came along. Mm -hmm. And uh, so once it was in the LA Times, then it was in the Denver Gazette, then it was in the New York Times, you know, you know, all over the place. And then a bunch of other people started showing up and, you know, I, I mean, it kind of made me sick because you had all these, these researchers who hadn't slept in the dirt, who hadn't frozen to death, who, ha who were not getting shot at by, machine guns out of helicopters and you know the kind of stuff that happened to me when i was out there but um i found a hilltop that looked down on the base that really pissed them off um and uh um so i was actually filming like right down their throats uh, most of the saucer stuff was not going on at 5-1 by the way it was going on down the road about 30 miles or so at uh, papoose lake uh, and the only time 5-1 was really interesting was you know when they moved the saucers in there which was 87 and in 87 they did their big land grab and uh, uh, they requested an expansion of their border to the state of Nevada. Nevada said no. And they just took it. They just took 87,000 acres, 80, 80, 89,000 acres. And uh, uh, so there were congressional investigations which were being led by Harry Reid, who was from searchlight Nevada. And uh, he said, uh, well, what's going on over there that you need all this extra land? And the commandant of Nellis, who supposedly was in charge, said, I don't know. I have no idea what goes on there. I don't have – you need a Q-16 clearance to set foot on the base. I don't have that, so I have no idea what's happening. And uh, uh, I think he said something like, well, what gives you the right to take this land? And he said, well, we we answered to a higher authority, and, and Reed got all erect and said, you know, who's higher than the U.S. Congress? And he said, well, you can discuss that behind closed doors. So uh, Harry Reid went there. They gave him the tour, complete with a little with a, a little cup of uh, pine scented Kool Aid, which is their mind control stuff. And uh, so suddenly everybody was, you know, all on board with it. Like, yeah, it's fine. We can do whatever we want. Um, so after they, that oh, land grab, you couldn't get that close as you got today, right? To um, be able to film. No, I, I broke the land grab because because when they grabbed the land, they forgot about this mountaintop that I found. Oh, okay. So so what happened years later? Uh, they were allowed to expand their border by, I think, 5,000 acres without getting congressional permission or permission from anybody. So what they did, <laughs> it's really sneaky, they snaked a tendril of land out from the base that went up the side of the mountain and then just took the top of the mountain. So that's it. So it was less than 5,000 acres, but you can't go up there because now they put up a big fence uh, around the top of the mountain with a big sign saying deadly forces authorized and whatever else. But it took them years to do that. And... Um, during the Clinton administration, this is because everything got moved out. 92, I would say spring of 93, and they moved everything to Utah, um, actually to uh, uh, Dugway Proving Grounds, uh, area 6413. And all they were doing is waiting for this ginormous uh, underground base. And again, I'm the guy that found Dulce, or not found it, but you know, kind of proved it exists. So now, for those of you watching in Utah, uh, there, the, the main underground base for the Northern United States is actually underneath the uh, King's peak, uh, which is in the Uinta national forest in Utah. So that's where they moved almost everything. And as I said, that's they where the real action is happening now, not 
Yeah, I don't know, not above ground, but but below ground. Yeah, and it's all it all links in. Well, just going back to Dulce. So in '89, uh, to prove Bill Moore wrong, I'm sorry, I kind of diverged there. That's um, all right. It was there. Uh, we got Dr. Jim Delatoso. Now Jim had been one of the pioneers. He, he was he did all kinds of interesting stuff. He came up with the uh, uh, computer algorithms to make it so you could use water in movies. Uh, Titanic and Abyss and you know all, all that stuff. It's a very complicated algorithm that gives you you know waves of water, and uh, so Jim came up with an idea of using a sound to basically create what's called data tabling. This is a big deal at the time, where um, we could take slices of sound that we would then bounce back on a DAT tape, and then we took all that sound and we ran it through seventy five hours of crazy supercomputer time at the University of San Diego. And uh, we came up, and I think I'm the only person. I'm, I'm, I was waiting for a, a, you know, a chance to at some point show this footage to people. Uh, but it's kind of weird because you prove stuff exists, and everybody goes, "Oh yeah, I know that's there." But you know, hey, you know, we actually physically proved that it was there. And uh, so we came up with an image of what the base looked like, and it was it had a big uh, dome at the top. Uh, it was divided into levels that were about you know had ceilings about 20 feet or so. It did seem to go down about seven levels. And uh, the big thing about this was is that you actually have uh, uh, these jet tubes, um, hyperloop, high-speed train jet tubes for their, uh, their hyperloop cars, which can travel underground across the country at almost 800 miles an hour. And uh, linked into places like Washington, D.C. and 5-1 and, and uh, Denver, uh, <coughs> underneath the Denver airport, because uh, that's the... Uh, most people don't realize that Denver is the secondary federal capital that if, if you were to, I mean, Washington DC is only six city blocks. And if you took out Washington DC, the entire continuing of government would move to uh, Denver, the underground right. facilities in Denver. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's why they spent $25 billion on that stupid airport, which is on a tornado plane, by the way, but from the air, it looks like a giant swastika. And uh, I'm sure George Bush had something to do with that. It's also, by the way, the building of that, of that airport, which is only supposed to be $5 billion is what triggered uh, the savings and loan collapse in the 80s, which then Congress had to uh, uh, bail out the savings and loans because uh, it was Scott Bush, I think. And uh, whatever the bank was there in Denver that was that was loaning all the money for that. So it, it triggered a major financial crisis for them to mm-hmm. build that scary base. And if you go around it, it's got all kinds of occult symbolism and stuff about the end of the world and, and uh you know, kids in coffins and, and yeah, those know. creepy murals, right? Yeah, so it's, it's you should do a whole thing about the Denver airport sometime. So anyway, so um, so we proved that Dulce was there, and uh, all kinds of weird stuff happened to us while we were out there, uh, including the fact that we ultrasounded the mountain, we pounded it with the sound of a beam ship from the Billy Meyer case, <laughs> which apparently is a noise that the Greys hate, and uh, can actually just you know explode them or something. And uh, within the next month of January, there were the, the, the Indians, the Apache, who live at the foot of the base. Um, you know, a Fred Electric Warrior, who's our guide, called me a couple of times and said, you know, whatever you guys did, there were these huge green fireballs that were seen actually rising out of the Mesa. And one went west um, over the western United States. The other one went east. And uh, uh, they've, they've, they've done something with it since then. But, uh, you know, and uh, by the way, all this is chronicled. Let me do a pitch in there. I mean, for my books, my Sands of Time books, uh, Sands of Time Volume 1 and Volume 2 explains everything about the Dulce War, about why it came about, 
about how there was a first conflict and uh, we had six guys die, which then led to uh, people underground actually building the jet tubes, finding a, an abattoir of human bones of something like a couple hundred thousand people that had been murdered or eaten or whatever uh, underneath the Mesa, which then led to Reagan saying, blow the place up. And uh, uh, which we did. So, um, so anyway, so there's Dulce. <coughs> and, you know, we proved Bill Moore was lying. <coughs> and um, he was an idiot. Let me tell you one other thing, too, that's interesting about this, because uh, it links into my working on Unsolved Mysteries. Sure. <clears throat> My partner in Unsolved uh, was a guy by the name of Bob Keviet. And Bob and I had worked together uh, when he was working on uh, Now Can Be Told uh, with Geraldo. And he, and he moved out here to the Western United States. And uh, Bob had written an article in an old time magazine called uh, Omni. You remember Omni magazine? Uh, yes, I do. <clears throat> so. Uh, Omni Magazine ran an article. I remember it was 1977, 78, actually. And it had a funny cartoon on it because it was Attack of the Killer Trees, I think was the, uh, I think was the uh, headline of the article. And it had a cartoon of trees, you know, throwing apples at you, you know, like chasing Dorothy and Toto and whatever else. And uh, at that time, they were saying that, uh, and this is where it gets really weird. Um, they were saying that uh, Monsanto had copyrighted a uh, genetic process by which they could now crossbreed the cytoplasmic genetics of plants with the, uh, the DNA of animals. And uh, that this was going to be a big thing in the future. Of course, everybody thought it was a joke at that time. But it's, uh, it all led to, um, uh, it's led to GMO. I mean, everything we know about GMO is now in genetically modified organisms where now they're crossbreeding the DNA of rats and hamsters and whatever. They're crossbreeding it with tobacco, crossbreeding it with uh, apples, crossbreeding it with, uh, with tomatoes. Um, and we had a big initiative here in California. Um, and Monsanto spent billions of dollars defeating this thing just to put a label on an apple that would say, you know, GMO produced so people would know. And it got voted down. That's, you know, that's how powerful Monsanto was. So, uh, wow. And, uh, all this came, <laughs> let's go back to Jim Delatoso. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> all this came because Jim had a video, a 19 minute video that we only have a piece of the video left. And on the video, it's a, uh, it's a CCC. It's a closed circuit camera. That's basically in a corner. It's just moving backwards and forwards like this. And what you see on the video is on one wall, you see what look like a series of, uh, of bubble-shaped hemispheric aquariums. Then you see a space in the wall, which has what looks like a monorail that runs through it. And there was a, uh, there are little carts. Instead of being freewheeling, they, they ran on rails throughout the, uh, throughout the facility. <coughs> and um, uh, you then see on the far wall, these black funnels or these siphons that come out of the ceiling. And underneath them are ambionic sacs. And in these sacs, you see beings. You see these creatures being grown in the sacs. And apparently they were taken from the, the aquariums off the wall, uh, grown until their hand size, kind of like sea monkeys. And then they were, they were grown to their full height, which was about four feet or so, uh, in these sacs. And they worked as 
um, helper monkeys, if you will, on the, you know, on the base. Because uh, if you and I were engaged in genetic progress uh, uh, programs where, hey, let's kidnap this little girl and see what happens when we give her, oh, I don't know, tentacles for arms. That'd be fun. Because um, apparently the uh, the experiments are being carried out at Dulce at level seven were so monstrously island of Dr. Moreau kind of stuff that they, they couldn't keep security. They couldn't, you know, uh, they couldn't keep human beings uh, as their security force. Now, what you never saw was it breaks away and you then see that this, this camera has been, um, uh, what's the word for it? Um, well, it's been mongrelized or something. It's basically taken apart or, or reused for something else. And there's a scientist who comes on who calls himself uh, Dr. Henry Monteith, who's still around, I think. And he comes on and says, I've come up with a laser tweezer process. I'm giving you the short version of the story. <laughs> laser tweezer process to uh, crossbreed plants with animals. And he, uh, big long thing, he gives a demonstration, shows the laser tweezer process, whatever else. And he crosses a laboratory hamster with a, uh, with a plant. I think is an aloe vera plant. Then he goes through a time-lapse thing where this plant grows and you see the, the aloe vera on the leaves has a, uh, has kind of golden fur and then it has two little feet on the bottom. So the plant could actually kind of move around. And then you have these wow. buds coming out of it that actually look like little hamster faces with the teeth and what have you. It was really scary. And, uh, oh and then he says, I'm looking for uh, $55,000, which even at that time was nothing in the private sector to advance my research. Thank you very much. And off he goes, and he goes back to what was originally on the tape, which is just going back and forth across these, uh, these, these amniotic sacs. In the foreground, by the way, you had a control dais with knobs and uh, screens, but in the front, you had what looked like a hot tub, and it was a long, big, uh, oblong tub with a tube that went straight up and then straight down in the tub. And apparently what we were told was that the uh, the reason for the massive cattle mutilations, because this was because Dulce in northern New Mexico was just south of, uh, uh, well, Farmington. It was west of Farmington and just south of, uh, of Durango. And uh, uh, but this is where the cattle mutilations started. And uh, Linda Moulton Howe started her entire career with a book called Strange Harvest. And um, uh, all about the cattle mutilations. Well, this thing was right dead center of where the cattle mutilations are. And I mean, I spoke to a farmer that said, uh, or a rancher, uh, by the name of Ed Gomez, who said, yeah, you get me a box of dynamite. I'll take you to a vent. We'll drop some down there. You know, you want to see some serious shit? And I was like, well, I don't have the time because I'm, I'm taking equipment back for the for the documentary and whatever else. Um, but it was, uh, and then my relationship with uh, with Linda uh, continued because uh, uh, Linda and I produced the first episode of a show for Fox called Sightings, and I produced the uh, uh, the Area Fifty One piece on Sightings, and uh, um, Sightings only ran thirteen episodes because Fox couldn't, for legal reasons, uh, order twenty four. They ordered thirteen, and it was the number one show on Fox. It was the biggest hit I think to this day that Fox ever had, and. Uh, uh, they got a big fight. There was like five different production companies got a big fight with Fox. And so Fox, well, they canceled the show. Actually, the production company said, well, fine, we'll go somewhere else. And Fox said, good for you. You know, good luck with that. Goodbye. And now they didn't have sightings anymore. And everybody thought it was a big conspiracy. But like the next day, 
a TV producer came in and said, hey, I've got an idea. You just had the number one show on your network, and now you're not doing anything with it. How about I give you a show that's about a couple of FBI agents. One's a doctor and a skeptic, and the other one's a crazy FBI agent. And uh, they go and investigate this stuff. And that guy's name was Chris Carter. And, of course, that then led to X-Files. So it's interesting how one thing, you do one thing, and it leads to another, which leads to another, and leads to another. So, uh, so there you go. I'm, uh, wow. Okay. All right. Well, that was one heck of an introduction, Dr. Moore. Oh, that was just we touched on. I thought we were talking about other stuff. <laughs> no, no, no. It, well, it's, it, it's, it's a, uh, it, I just let you go because you're dropping all types of great information on us, but let, let's kind of take let's... it back a little bit okay? and uh, just maybe discuss, you know, some of the questions I have here, because I know that you have, I mean, you've already demonstrated you have your, uh, your pedigree, your knowledge base is just incredible. So I want to ask you some of these questions that, because I'm still very much a student on a lot of these issues. And I was very curious because, you know, one of the things that is a huge topic, I think, in the truther community, probably at the, at the core of what people are really wondering about, because we realize that we've been lied to about everything, right? Yeah. Is everything you know is wrong. So the CIA, the CIA yeah, has right. so, in its goal of, that everything you know is wrong. There, exactly, right. So, so that, of course, begs a lot of questions. And one of the biggest ones is, what is Earth's true history? How did we get here? I mean, you know, how old is the Earth? I mean, we could go on and on, but l- let me just kind of phrase it like that, you know, central to our understanding of our existence I think is establishing, like I said, who we are, where we came from, an accurate account of the historical events in between. I know it's a tall order, but can, can you give us an idea? The last book was exactly about this exact thing. Oh, it's beautiful. So, as a matter of fact, I just finished it. So I'm kind of, I've got kind of the afternoon off and it's going to the printers next week, but it's called the Sumerian War. So it's, uh, uh, it's act three, uh, book seven in the series. And it deals with the, uh, the true history of earth. And, um, Okay, the universe, as we know it, according to the Maya, is approximately 16.4 billion years old. Now, according to our scientists, uh, they claim that the universe is only 14 billion years old. Well, I trust the Maya more because the further and deeper we look into the center of the universe, uh, the more we begin to realize that you know modern science is incorrect. Uh, also, apparently, uh, there's easy proof to say that the big bang theory is a total hoax because if you look at the width and breadth of the universe it could not have gotten to where it was in in the period of time the period of time that we give it so uh it seems as though the universe just kind of faded in from somewhere else or it's uh it's devolving in a certain way so as far as earth goes um you have uh, okay, so we are in between two warring empires who contributed to the evolution of multiple species uh, on this planet. And if you look at, I mean, this is as easy as looking at the, the logos for NASA or look at the logos for Space Force. And if you look at those logos on the Lower left-hand side of the NASA logo is, first off at the top, you have Orion. Then on the lower left-hand side, you have the Pleiades. And on the lower, I'm sorry, lower right-hand side, lower left-hand side is Alpha Draconis, or Draco, mm-hmm. as the main star, or mm-hmm. Thuban, as it's actually called, which was the North Star at one time. 
Now, Trump comes along and puts together the Space Force, or the sixth branch of the military. And on Space Force, you have a star at the top, which is, in fact, Aldebaran, from which the Sumerian or Babylonian culture came. And it's the bright red giant, which is in the eye of Taurus, which is the Hyades. And on the lower right-hand side, you have the Pleiades again. On the lower left-hand side, you once again have Alpha Draconis. So why is it you have this uh, this division of these constellations and galaxies? Well, that's because uh, this planet was originally being settled, or the evolutionary track was uh, reptilians, was dinosaurs, 65 million some years ago. And uh, uh, the Saurians, who were ruling the planet, uh, evolving nicely, apparently, with the help of the Alphraconians, uh, fight a war with the, uh, with I guess you could say it was the Palladians, but it was actually a, a race of beings called the uh, the Elogian, who are um, from Aldebaran, who actually had established the, uh, the Babylonian culture, of which we still deal with the Babylonian debt system, of which we're still enslaved by that same system, if you will. And uh, there was a battle between these 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 two species. So it ended with, uh, there was a, a, a planet just beyond the orbit of Mars, which they called Astra. There's other people that call it Maldek, whatever else. But uh, this planet was exploded and became the asteroid belt. So the war was raging on two planets. Actually, there were giants apparently on this planet as well. And the giants all went to Mars. And uh, uh, long story short, they used Astra and the asteroid belt to start hurling low-tech weapons, if you will, at Mars and Earth. Now, 12 of these big uh, <clears throat> 12 of these big asteroids hit Mars. Only one of them hit the Earth. And of course, that one uh, hit 65 million years ago, the big asteroid, which, uh, which then formed the Gulf of Mexico. And the uh, massive tidal waves, obviously around the planet, probably 3,000 feet high that, that ringed the planet over and over. Uh, you still have evidence of this in the, uh, in the Eastern Sahara from the massive sand dunes there, which are all from these, these tidal waves. But then one last weapon was used. And uh, this was a plasma beam weapon. And the plasma beam weapon was used first on Mars, and it cut a gigantic trench, which is still called the Marineris Valleys. And it's uh, it formed a <laughs> Grand Canyon on Mars that's over 3,000 miles long and seven miles deep. Well, we have the same feature here on Earth because they used it a second time. Mars, it, it was bigger and longer because they, they managed to hit Mars and it was closer to the weapon. And then they took a shot at Earth and it formed what we call the Grand Canyon. The Grand Canyon is not from uh, erosion from the Colorado River. It's stupid. It's a, it's a plasma beam weapon. And what this resulted in? These were the uh, Aldebarans that fired the yeah. weapon. Yeah, the okay. Illigen who come from Aldebaran, who later became known as the Sumerians. So that's that's the best. Sumerians is probably the best way to refer to them. Uh, Use this weapon. Now, they had also at one point grabbed about twenty thousand monkeys or so, monkeys, higher apes, clamped off the top of our DNA because I don't know if you know this or not, but gorillas actually have uh, uh, bigger DNA than we do. They've got forty. Uh, they've got 20, 23, 24 base pairs, and we have 23. So uh, I didn't know that, no. 
Uh, so actually, and that's why it was weird because when Crick and Watson in the fifties won the Nobel Peace Prize for um, discovering the DNA helix, they couldn't figure out what the difference between uh, between apes and human beings was. And then, of course, we discovered that there's a clamp at the top of the DNA, which gives us 23 base pairs per turn, along with there being an aging virus, apparently, that was released into us because there's no reason why we should not be able to live uh, between 600 and 1,000 years or so. But it's odd that in the Bible, if you look at the mysterious uh, Genesis 6, it talks about uh, in that particular chapter, it talks about how God sets the age of man at 120 years, releasing the aging virus into us, which means we can only live 120 years, primarily because God said, you got all these slaves. Why aren't they working better? And they said, the sons of God, the fallen Nephilim, said, well, they live too long. And if you cut their lifespan so they didn't live as long, they'd make better workers and be able to get us more copper and more gold and more silver. Um, so... And I feel really bad because because Watson was, uh, and I hate to even say this, but Watson was drummed out of the scientific core. I mean, became just completely blacklisted uh, simply because he made the outrageous statement that black people might be better at sports than white people. And they said, oh, that's outrageously racist and all this other stuff. It's like, you know, if you want to talk about extinction, you know, try to find me a, a white cornerback in the NFL. They don't exist anymore. So, um, um Anyway, so the elogian came back every 23,000 years, and, and we're, we're apparently the seventh the seventh generation of this. But uh, every 23,000 years, they would come, they would mess with the genetics, they would improve the race, they would wipe out everything else, <clears throat> come back another 23,000 years later. And so now they're on, the, uh, they're on the seventh generation of this now, which is us. And uh, they were coming back at one point. My entire book about, is about how they were coming back to possibly uh, you know, wipe out Earth again and reestablish their Reich. And it was the Sumerians established the Babylonian Reich first. The second Reich was uh, Rome. And the third Reich, they thought, was going to be the Germans, <clears throat> which is what my, my latest book, uh, The Vril Daman Diaries, is all about. It's about these five gorgeous women who would uh, grow their hair to their ankles and channel naked. And they were channeling the Sumerians and uh, giving the Germans... Uh, super high advanced technology, which explains one of the biggest mysteries of the 20th century, which is how the hell do the Germans go from biplanes made out of canvas and wire to within less than 20 years achieving what they call the Rumpflugen or space flight. And, uh, and then these women disappear. They say, none of us are staying here. We're going home. And they send out a telegram on March 11th of 1945. And they all vanish, just completely vanish. Uh, and, of course, we took the entire fascist, military, industrial, medical complex of Germany, and uh, we shipped it here to the United States, which we're living with today, under, under Project Paperclip and various other, you know, and through the Vatican, something called the Rat Line, which is what the book and the movie The Odessify were all about. Um, so let me ask you a question. I just want to try to make sure I'm digesting. One of the okay. things, the Saurians went underground. And at that time, 65 million years ago, to hide from the, you know, the nuclear winter, uh, there's an entire alternate civilization underground uh, that bifurcated into two different parts, I guess. One part is peaceful and wise and became vegetarians and still have rather positive uh, relations with 
certain people in Norway, um, with the Chinese, especially with the Tibetans. And the other part uh, started using what they call the dark real energy. But this other part uh, still eat human flesh and have worked out deals uh, with the people you know of as the Illuminati and uh, can actually use their natural evolutionary abilities to hollow out and take over human bodies. And so this is the, so we're being evolved on the surface and the Saurians are evolving underground. And if you look at, uh, if you think I'm making this up. No, I don't. I'm just trying to wrap my brain on, around all this. A lot of information. Of Revel- if you look at the book of Revelation of the Bible, the, the last battle is between Michael and the hosts of heaven and the red dragon. And so he's he's fighting, and the red dragon is what we call the constellation uh, of Thuban. And this is all the prophecy in the Bible about you know about Michael and the and the, the hosts of heaven fighting these uh, uh, fighting these Saurians, fighting these fighting these reptilians. And um, so I, I, it came to a revelation for me that a lot of stuff that David Icke is saying is absolutely correct. And once again, in my book, uh, you know, the Sumerian War, uh, we have. I have a transcript actually <laughs> because we have ambassadorial relations <clears throat> with these reptilians in a huge complex uh, underneath the Pentagon. And it can be accessed from the gazebo at the center of the Pentagon. And uh, so we have asked, we have ambassadorial relations with the, uh, with the peaceful um, uh, reptilians, peaceful Saurians or the, 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 the serpent brotherhood as they call it. And as far as the, uh, the dark vril go, um, they have they've had bases built for them. One of the things when we went into Dulce and we we're cleaning out Dulce, we we just thought we were going to be fighting these grays with their little green lasers, and suddenly these Alpha Draconian Nagasarachi warriors show up, and now we got a real problem. And uh, we we would have lost that battle if some mysterious weapon, some implosion bomb, had been used on Dulce. So anyway, there so you, you were so. you were down there. Is that what you're saying for the for that battle? No, no, but it came from the, uh, it came from the transcripts that I was given, uh, the diaries and the transcripts. Oh, okay. All right. The way you phrased it, I wasn't sure. Okay. What my Sans time books are based on. And, um, to this day, we don't know how we won. Uh, Reagan wanted the police cleared out. He was going to nuke the entire area. And, uh, we did because at the last minute, something else happened. Excuse me a second. Go ahead. Ask your question. Oh yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, let me pivot then. Uh, you, you've laid out a whole bunch of good stuff there. So we talked a little bit about, and I'm going to probably have to go back and listen to this and digest some of the stuff that you're, you're, you're putting down because a lot of it is consistent you know, with what I've heard, but a lot of it's very new information for me. Well, so read the, read the books. I'll, I'll oh, yeah, you. absolutely. So, all yeah, in all in the books. Everything I know comes through the books. Beautiful, beautiful. All right. Well, another thing that I, I understand uh, that you are a remote viewer, is that correct? Yes. Or you, you have the ability to do that. All right. So I was wondering if maybe you could talk about that a little bit, sure. because sometimes people, you know, we, we've all heard the term. I, everyone out there in my audience at this point is familiar with the term, but I think a lot of folks aren't really sure how it really works. Um, so I'm just kind of curious. In terms of the process of remote viewing, can you talk about that a little bit? And can you talk about how you initially discovered it? And well, it was, you know, it, did it go it was, back it was, to your... Experiences, Russell Targ, Targ, Ingo Swan, uh, Preston, I think, but they, I mean, it was kind of luck of the draw that I got introduced to it to begin with. Um, 
I was taking advanced placement summer school classes at Stanford because um, it was right practically across the street from my house in Atherton. And uh, so I was taking psychology classes and it was like psych 101. And uh, Russell Targ came into the class. Now, Russell was a really impressive guy. I mean, he basically we have satellites around the earth today because of Russell. Russell is an amazing scientist and he's written some books on this, which I would advise. So um, they came into the class and said, you guys want to be part of an experiment? We said, sure. So um, they taught us the original remote viewing protocols. Uh, we learned later that um, I have to excuse me for a second because my throat's getting really bad. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Could we take your time stop for just a moment? Absolutely. Any yeah. Let me pause this and uh, we'll be right back. So I'm in a class, I'm in a psych class at Stanford and Russell Targ comes in from the Stanford research Institute from SRI. We found out later we're being funded by DARPA, uh, defense advanced projects, intelligent uh, research projects agency, which was all CIA. And uh, they taught us these protocols. These basically like a kind of a starship. You're sitting in the captain's chair. You've got a big screen in front of you. Um, the way I teach it, it's it's like Star Trek where your communications officers, Lieutenant Hur is over here and Spock accesses the logical side of your brain, whatever. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they wanted us to predict where two kids that were taken out of the class wanted us to predict where they would be, uh, I think the next day or two days later or so on campus. And if we could actually focus on where they were going to be. Now, interestingly enough, not only was I really good at this, but for years and years and years, um, my grandmother, who was from Ireland, actually taught me how to use a pendulum. So, uh, um, and years later, I, I used that pendulum to do everything from uh, predict earthquakes to, you know, find treasure, do all kinds of crazy stuff. So, uh, um, so the thing was that these, we we're going to predict where these two kids were like the next day. And um, they shoved them out of a car on campus for people that don't know the Stanford campus is gigantic. It's it's, they call it the farm. Cause it's just, I mean, I had to ride my bike like five miles between classes. And uh, so they walk around for 15 minutes and every 15 minutes, they would randomly spin a, uh, a twister wheel. This shows you how advanced the experiment is. And they just walk in the direction that the, that the, that the spinner pointed. And so they walk around, walk around, walk around two, three hours or so. And we gave them a, a envelope that was our predictions, a map prediction as to where they were going to be. And they stopped. They were by the fountain, by the quad, I think looking up at the Hoover Tower. And uh, uh, they stop at 2 o'clock and they open up the envelope and it has an X on it saying this is where you're standing and what you're looking at, uh, which was remarkable. Now, of course, the military applications for something like that are immense. And uh, what Russell was doing with it later was he put together something called the Delphi Associates, which is what I named my newsletter after, Delphi Associates newsletter. So I had to give Russell some credit with that. And uh, they were predicting um, silver prices at the time. And uh, until one day, a guy came in who apparently was financing the whole thing and told him how much money he was making. And of course, the, the viewers weren't making anything. And the minute you get greed involved into this stuff or anything that has to do with money, really, uh, it kind of falls apart. So uh, as luck would have it, years later, I was renting a room in my house, and the lady that answered the, the ad was uh, Dr. Elizabeth Targ, and she was Russell's daughter. And not only she started living in the house, but we were dating as well. And uh, 
so she and I started doing remote viewing and she, uh, she was going through med school. So that she eventually could become a psychiatrist and, uh, somebody like me, she probably needed a whole team of, you know, Viennese psychoanalysts to figure me out. And, um, um, so we needed money. So we figured out a way to actually use remote viewing because we figure anything that's worth doing is worth getting paid for. And we figured out how to predict the, uh, uh, the outcome of roulette wheels and we would do really well at it. And we would just go to the point where, you know, we'd walk away. The average take was about 15 grand, 15 to 20 grand. And, uh, and then we just get tired of doing it and we'd have enough money to do anything we wanted. So, you know, she paid for med school, paid for, uh, psychiatry school, whatever. And, uh, you know, did what she was doing. So some years later, actually, uh, uh, James Spottiswood, who was the brother of Roger Spottiswood, who directed a bunch of the James Bond movies, uh, he was doing his PhD thesis, and he did uh, uh, remote viewing and predicting the outcome of random number generators. So we got a gang of us together. We went up to my, my parents' condo in Lake Tahoe. We started hitting the casino on the North Lakeside Nevada Club, I think it was, and um, we won a bunch of money and I, and out of, out of uh, 10 throws or 10 tests, uh, I thought we were 80%. We missed one where we didn't bet because once again, it got into a fight with the, with the viewers where one lady uh, was like, Oh no, they're looking at us like we're criminals and Oh, it's too easy. We're stealing money. I'm like, no, we could lose. You know what we're doing is in essence impossible. So according to the report, we were 70%. We were actually 80 um, uh, in predicting it. And of course, the cool thing about it is, is that if you're predicting a third of the board, which we were doing, because you got one to 12, 13 to 24 and 25 to 36. And if you predict that third of the board, uh, then you can lay out. So let's say we bet the third. Now it pays two to one, which is what a back, a blackjack would pay. And, um, uh, but what I was doing was I knew it was going to come out that way. So you'd take 10 bucks, 20 bucks, whatever. And you'd bet every number on that third of the board. And of course, one of them is going to come out and pay you 35 to one. So, um, um, so you've got a way to maximize it and the whole thing. So, uh, and I was doing remote viewing seminars all over the country. I, I, I taught remote viewing in Japan. I taught it in Sweden. I taught it in France, I taught it in Canada. So, I mean, when you teach it, um, this is what I'm kind of curious about is, you know, first of all, can anybody do it? And, you know, how do you actually go about teaching it? I mean, what are some of the basics that you, that you have to know? Well, it's, it's kind of a two man thing. It's kind of a tandem thing. So for example, if you were the viewer and I was the, and I was the monitor, um, usually what I encourage people to do is if you're doing that, you should always switch because otherwise it becomes kind of a, a master slave sort of relationship. So if you're both viewers, one person needs to be the monitor because you get to be a better monitor and another person gets to be the viewer. But yeah, I, I put a book booklet together, which is basically a, a handbook for the classes and, uh, you know, a way to process it. Now, obviously being intuitive or being artistic, uh, certainly helps the process because you're, you're looking at pictures. And um, the easiest way to explain it is, is you've got the uh, you've got the left hand side of the brain, which controls the right hand side of the body. This is the dominant masculine aggressive. We call it conscious side of the brain, which deals in logic, uh, linear time. Uh, one plus one equals two, two plus two equals four um, geometry, whatever. But all the male stuff, uh, Tonka trucks, you know, toys, whatever. Um, yeah. And, it, you know, it balances the checkbook, so to speak. So, but it exists in linear time. Now, when you go to the right-hand side of the brain, which is what we're, we're trying to advance now, 
which controls the left-hand side of the body. The cool part about it is, is that if you, if you take psilocybin as an example, or psychedelics, uh, they kind of ignite this part of the brain, the superior anterior section of the brain. And, um, um, so this side of the brain is the quantum side of the brain. It, it not only thinks in terms of uh, um, color, sound, uh, music, dance, uh, fluidic movement, but it also sees quantum time, which means that all of time and space as we know it uh, exists completely past, present, future in, in this left-hand side of the brain. So I'm sorry, the right-hand side of the brain controlling the left-hand side of the body. But it has no mathematical ability. Two plus two equals purple, literally that part of the brain. But it's the part that has the psychic power. So the idea is that you simply take three targets. You get familiar with a roulette wheel. You have to be very specific about your time, very specific about your question, very specific about your target. So to explain this, so let's say I pick three targets. Uh, you try to pick three targets that are really different. So let's say one's a fluffy cat. Uh, the other one's the Great Pyramid. And the third one is uh, the Eiffel Tower, as an example. So you've got three things, mm -hmm. three very different things. So they're different sensually. They're different, uh, you know, viewing-wise. So, um, um, and then you sit down, you know, with a, with a viewer and you say, okay, we're going to do, I'm going to show you a photo or an object or whatever. Uh, after the spin of this roulette wheel, after 9 p.m., as an example. So that way... Uh, after 9 p.m., that wheel can spin any time after 9 p.m., 9.05, 9.30. It can spin at 6 a.m. the next morning. And as long as it's the spin of the wheel after that time, you then are going to show a target to the viewer. So let's say I, you know, I put you in a trance and we go through my entire process. You build a, a starship bridge in your mind. You're sitting in the captain's chair. You're getting sensory input. You can see things on the screen. That ship travels within the blood of God. Uh, you go anywhere in time and space in that ship and then see what's up on the screen. You have a whole support staff. You've got Uhura and Spock and uh, Mr. Sulu and Chekhov and whatever else, you know, guiding you, taking you through this. So you've got all these these beings in your head that are kind of helping you with. And uh, um, and they'll take you to that particular point. So let's say what you see is uh, you could draw it first and you, you, you draw me what looks like a, a TV antenna or something. And then you, you see lots of lights and you see lots of traffic and you smell garlic and French bread and you see a woman with hair under her arms and some guy's rude to you. And you're pretty sure that you're <laughs> looking at the Eiffel Tower. You're looking at France. And out of billions of infinite targets in the universe, if you hit one of those things, I'm like, okay, so we got it. We go to the casino, we hang out, we have a few drinks, we wait till nine o'clock, uh, we hit the table. Uh, first spin of the wheel after nine o'clock, you know, we place our bets. Uh, usually Elizabeth and I would put down a thousand dollars, which pays $3,000. And then if you put, uh, uh, say $130, uh, 10 a piece on, you know, all $120 actually, uh, on one part of the board, one of those is going to pay 35 to one. So, um, that's how it works. So it's, uh, the real, it really took off when I was teaching people how to, now here's the problem with the lotto as an example. So many people said, well, how come we can't pick the lotto? Cause again, to the, right side of the brain which doesn't understand numbers the lotto has so many different numbers to it i mean i could probably pick a horse race because that's one through nine football games are pretty easy because that's you know uh, red or blue uh is you know is it usc ucla is it you know so you only have a 50 50 outcome for the game um so that's 
that's pretty much how. So it you works. don't need any actual. I mean, obviously the the military applications, as you said, are pretty immense. But well, I mean, if you're, you about, if you're doing this you military application, let me tell you. Okay, this this is a story for you. You're not going to believe. So, um, a friend of mine, a very famous psychic, lives in Arkansas, Star Fuentes. Anybody can call her, and anybody can ask her about this. She gives me a call, and she says, uh, "You know, the military contacted me." about doing some remote, remote viewing for them. And I said, okay. And she said, I recommended you because as far as I know, you're the best remote viewer in the world. And I was like, okay. So I get a call from the Pentagon. I went through two, <coughs> um, uh, two handlers at the Pentagon, but they were both E-ring. Oddly enough, they were both colonels and they were both named Elaine. I thought that was weird. I thought it was a code word or something that they were both Colonel Elaine. And um, at first, what they had me viewing was viruses. They had me viewing different types and shapes of cells and viruses and whatever else. And then we graduated from that. Apparently, I was the best one in the group because they were contacting a lot of other people. And they finally said, well, you know, now we have some pretty serious targets for you. And, of course, when they found out I could do map dowsing as well, uh, they were just over the moon. I mean, they, you know, they crapped their underpants. They were just so happy about that. <clears throat> and so that I started – and the way we do it is that, is that you don't get anything up front. You don't get front-loaded. Um, you'll get a coordinate, which is like 2752 aqua or 12, you know, 2567 gamma. So it's just a nonsense coordinate, but what it gives you is it gives you the, it's sort of like having a house number where you're at 93 uh, Green Street. So you see that, you know, you see green is the color and then you see the uh, um, the number is 93. So that relates to both sides of the brain. You know, one is the quantum side, keeps that part happy, and the other side is the logical side. So um, they were giving me this kind of nonsense coordinates and I kept giving them uh, um, desert landscapes. And eventually, and this was uh, this was December of uh, 2001, December 2001. And I finally just broke down and said, I know what you're doing. You guys are looking for bin Laden. And they said, yeah, and they finally admitted. They said, we don't want to front load you with anything, because when you front load, you get what's called AOL, which is analytic overlay. And, you know, because here's your target. You can make up a bunch of stuff up about the target. I think I I had a target once that was a rainbow. And uh, a rainbow over a forest. And I had this whole thing where, oh, there's a rainbow, but there's a pot of gold. And there's a leprechaun dancing around in the pot of gold, which is all analytic overlay over just the target, which was a rainbow. I was assuming things were going on. <laughs> it's exactly like <clears throat> a better explanation of it is uh, it's Mary Poppins. And Mary Poppins and Bert draws chalk paintings. And Mary Poppins grabs the kids and you jump into the chalk painting. That's exactly what it's like. It's a holographic view of the universe. So... Eventually, I got a map and I started viewing this whole thing. And I said, here's your boy. I said, your boy. And it's interesting because you're looking at windows in time because there's there's the butterfly chaos theory where a butterfly can go from point A to point B 10,000 times and reach and leave for the same destination and arrive at the same destination. But it'll be 10,000 different ways. The butterfly will go up, butterfly will go down because, you know, there's wind variations and whatever else. So it's always about a window. It's very much like a, a gold chain around a woman's neck. And uh, and she has a jewel on that chain. Well, it, you know, the chain goes back and forth and the jewel moves back and forth across the neck. So um, 
here's your boy. I said, he's going to be at these coordinates, longitude and latitude. It's a valley. It's outside of, of Kaust in Afghanistan. And uh, uh, he's going to be traveling through this valley with an escort of people. And it's going to be between uh, January 25th and February 5th of 2002. And they're like, okay, done and done. Now, the weird part about this was I said, well, can I talk about this? And I said, well, and they said, if you don't give too many specifics, you can't. So to give you some proof of this, I'm on Art Bell Coast to Coast in front of 27 million people. And I, I produced uh, Art's show originally. Art became a big believer because of me, because we were calling him from uh, from the payphone out in front of the little alien, telling Art to go the hell outside, that there's a big ship heading his way. And when he saw this, and I just got finished with the UFO documentary, uh, Art said, I want to know everybody and everything you know. I want to do this because his ratings went through the roof and he was only a local show in Las Vegas at that time. And we built that show um, with communications with my being on the program with my, you know, hitting up with guests. Uh, but we had 27 million, 26 and a half million people listening to the program. Number one show late night, number three overall behind Dr. Laura and Rush Limbaugh. And, um, you know, and we built it single-handed. And then of course they sold it, they sold it to J-Core and J-Core sold it to Premiere and then Premiere sold it to Clear Channel and Art hated Clear Channel and uh, started making up reasons for why he wasn't coming into work. And then they handed it all to that idiot George Norrie who then basically just wrecked the show. I mean, he just wrecked it. So um, um, so there you go. So I talked about it on, wow. on, on the radio and I said, uh, you know, and it's going to be in this period of time. Well, lo and behold, and once again, we were on to do this. They hit Bin Laden. They, they, they hit his caravan. I think it was February 2nd. And a big news release, and you can check this if you want, but a big press release went out where they said, we believe that we've actually hit Bin Laden. And the CIA or whomever was asking for uh, tissue samples, blood and tissue samples from the Bin Laden family because Bin Laden had something like 57 relatives or brothers and sisters or something. And the Bin Laden family, there's still a construction, a huge construction company in the Middle East that's just been doing a multi-billion dollar retrofit on Mecca. And uh, uh, I was told that they found his blood. They found his, uh, his, his, uh, his DNA. Uh, didn't find him. Now, I was told that what they'd done with this missile when they hit them was um, they like blew up like the left side of his body. So that he was badly wounded, badly injured. Uh, he had to be on a dialysis machine, which they could transport from place to place because you have to have the whole machine. And uh, uh, But I was told he fell over dead at some point in uh, late April, early May of uh, 2002. And uh, the illusion of him was kept alive. The Pakistanis confirmed that, by the way. They said, yeah, he's dead. And yeah, he died here. And yeah, he was hit with a missile and he died of wounds. And the United States looked at Pakistan and said, you still want missiles? You still want planes? You still want guns? You still want tanks? And they said, yes, United States, Uncle Sam, thank you very much, we would. And they said, is Bin Laden still dead? And they said, no, no, he's still alive, running around. So we used him as a as a threat to basically just wow. murder 27 million people in the region, by the way. So that's kind of how it works and an example of how it works. Wow, that's incredible. All right. Well, um, you know what? There's so many different topics I want to ask you about, but why don't you tell us a little bit about your book? Because I don't want to push you too hard. You know, I know I know you're uh, struggling a little bit with your voice. You're still healing, of course. 
No, so why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, your, you know, your series uh, of books and and definitely the latest one because I know this is really popular. You can't keep them in stock, from what I understand. No, we can't. It's every time we every time we get thousands of these things, they just sell out. Um, it's a uh, if you want to pump my website, it's uh, strangeuniverseradio.com. They're all up there. Uh, okay, I'll put a I'll put a link in the description. Okay, so strange, strange universe, strangeuniverseradio.com. Okay, and uh, you can get them on Amazon. Hopefully you can, you know, Amazon obviously takes a big chunk, big bite out of your ass. And, uh, uh, but they're all over Amazon. My, my first two novels uh, were Black Seraph and uh, uh, The Dark Prophet, Veil the Antichrist. And uh, that's about a, a, a guy who works as a Jesuit spy for the Jesuits and for the Catholic Church. And he's a double agent inside the, uh, the Arab terror networks. And it's really kind of scary because what you're seeing happening now uh, with the peace deals that are being made with Iran and Saudi Arabia and Pakistan is that you have exactly what I predicted in the dark prophet is that you would have a conglomeration of Islamic countries, 1.7 billion Muslims, basically under one leader, the 12th Mahdi, that would then basically war on Christianity in the West. And this is, if you want to know the reason behind nine 11, if you want to know the reason behind uh, all this stuff, it was all triggered by the by the Vatican. It was all triggered by the Jesuits. They run the intelligence agencies of the world. They run the five eyes. It's all out of the Vatican. And um, their goal with 9-11 was to, was to do something to get the United States to start dealing with what they saw as the direct threat of Islam versus Christianity and the rest of the world. In uh, 1994, 1994, uh, I predicted that World War III would begin <clears throat> when Pakistan attacked India with nuclear weapons. Well, at that time, the Pakistanis barely knew how to hook a, a, a cart to a couple of ox, and now they've got nuclear bombs, and now they're you know they're directly threatening a nuclear conflict between them and India. So this entire Islamic caliphate is coming together against the West again, thanks to our genius president Joe Biden, and. Uh, you know, thanks to what's going on with with Iran and the Israelis accepting the Iranians and the Iranians welcoming back uh, the son of the Shah, Shah Reza Pahlavi, who's the rightful king of Iran. So it's it's going to get bad as far as that goes. Now, the Sands of Time books, a um, little more simple story is that uh, for years I've been communicating with uh, a man that I call Ted Humphrey, not his real name, <laughs> but he heard me on the radio. Uh, he took me out to dinner a bunch of times. He'd call me on the phone. And for him, it was a perfect way for him to release information to the public. I was on the radio uh, as a reporter. Um, I was reporting things that I'd seen or heard or what have you. And uh, we would get them out there to, you know, 27 million people late at night. And uh, it acted as a, as a whole wave of consciousness to, uh, to enlighten people, to change certain events in the timeline. Uh, the predictions that I was making at the time uh, art was freaking out because I was making very specific predictions about earthquakes, natural catastrophes, political events. And it got to the point where art really got uncomfortable with me predicting things. And I said, well, you've got Ed Dames on there all the time. I mean, you know, he's never right about anything. And you let him talk about the end of the world. He goes, yeah, but we all know Ed's full of shit, his exact words. And he says, but when you predict something, it happens. And it scares me because I think that we're using the consciousness of these 27 million people at night, at sleep, when they're at their most powerful, their most imaginative, to uh, maybe create these things, you know, happening. So um, anyway, uh, 
long story short, 2009, I get a call from a very scary group of lawyers. I knew they had military connections. Uh, I thought they were going to do something bad to me because of the stuff that I'd done with Area 51 years ago, which they did eventually because they, I had a five-star general tell me they're going to find a way to get you. And the fact that you're psychic and you've got a newsletter and you make psychic predictions is the only thing that keeps you from putting a bullet in your head. And um, so he said, you're too funny to kill was the other things they said about me. I was too funny to kill. So um, uh, long story short, I get called by this, this, this very scary lady lawyer. I have to sign a stack of non-disclosure agreements. Um, I was told that when I was working for Geraldo, uh, we had a case of a guy who called himself Ghost Walker. And Ghost Walker claimed to be an assassin with 62 kills and that he, uh, uh, he was stationed at Area 51 in his off time and that he now had this stack of like 500 pages of documents that he wanted to release to the world, but he wanted money for it. And um, Geraldo was willing to pay him the money uh, if we got him to wherever Geraldo was at the time, New York or what have you. And, uh, you know, so I was willing to give up my life and basically change everything to enlighten human, the human race. Eventually, Ghost Walker just disappeared. We had an old security team standing out in front of the Flamingo Hotel in Las Vegas, and we never saw him again. And uh, uh, But because of that, I think that this guy, Ted Humphrey, found that I was trustworthy enough to be the conduit for this information, it also helped that I was a, I'm a, a great writer, and uh, you know I grew up with the likes of you know, knowing people like Rod Serling and Ray Bradbury used to come over and read me bedtime stories. And uh, since my dad was working for TRW as the vice president, you know that's how I got to meet guys like Isaac Asimov and Gene Roddenberry and uh, uh, Robert Heinlein, you know who were all my heroes when I was a kid. And my aspiration was to be as you know as good and as poetic as 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 Ray Bradbury was. So um, um, I was given these journals, these, these diaries of Dr. Ted Humphrey Jr. And how when he was a kid, his father had disappeared. Ted Humphrey Sr. Uh, had vanished. And how Ted then began to climb his way up through the black world of black ops and, and teleportation and time travel and whatever else to get to be head of this group, primarily to find out what really happened to his father. And, and uh, you know, so it's the classic... Uh, you know, a lot of classic aspects to the story. And um, uh, they said that Ted Humphrey had moved on. They never said that he died. And I said, well, when was his funeral? Why was it I invited? And they said, well, he's, he's just moved on. And when I then later found that there were periods of time where he just tossed himself in a time stream and teleported to different places in the galaxy, uh, I'm still hoping and praying that at some point he returns. And sometime, at some point, uh, he comes well, back. That's another subject I want to pick your brain on is teleportation, but we can maybe do that on a on a different call. But because I'm well, sure I mean, that's we, a big call you know, order too. My uncle, Doctor Fred Bell. I mean, when I was in college, we we built a time machine in his backyard, which worked twice, and it's a uh, he had what? one opponent. Oh yeah, I gotta and, hear that story. You'll hear the time machine story, and uh, yeah, it, it was crazy. Oh, I'm sorry, you were you were you were in the process. I had asked you about your book, so I don't want to derail you from that. But we, we no, definitely have to so get got, back to that. Like, I got stacks of these diaries. <clears throat> my job with the diaries, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> my job with the diaries was to, uh, you know, make them readable. So you don't just say, "Oh, we did this today" or "We did that today." So um, I turned them into, I guess, an action adventure series. <coughs> but um, people like Carrie Cassidy is—I mean, they've gotten a five-star rating on Amazon. Uh, everybody, I mean, I don't think I've got a, the only bad review I've gotten was, oh, I've, I found some editing mistakes. 
And uh, what Kerry Cassidy has said is that, you know, it's the greatest download of Black World, Black Ops information. So uh, Kevin Shaw, my buddy who's on Radio Open Canada, says, uh, you don't like these books, you don't like, you know, I'm, I'm considered the the Tom Clancy, if you will, of the uh, um, of the shadow government stuff. And uh, someday, someday, I think these books will be will be seen as the true history of humanity, the true history of technology, the true history of humanity, and the true history of, of planet Earth. That's how important the books are. And I'm finishing them up now. Um, I just finished Sumerian War. The last one I've got is this final battle against the uh, Alfraconians uh, from above and below, I might add, because they, they come at us from the inner Earth and they come at us from, from space too. All of which you've been kept blissfully unaware of, so you can all sleep and feel safe. And uh, but crazy stuff. If, if you want to know where seven hundred fifty billion dollars in the military budget goes every year, uh, this is where. And let me tell you one other interesting thing about Area Fifty One. When we're at Area Fifty One, we're out in the Tickaboo Valley, which is on the public side of the road, and we're right along Highway Three Seventy Five, which, because of us, they renamed the Extraterrestrial Highway. And um, Every Wednesday night, they would fly these saucers, but they'd fly them, you know, 50 feet off the ground. They'd, they'd fly it within the valley. And my big question was, you have a military reservation that is three times the size of Switzerland. And you're flying this stuff right over our heads so we can photograph it, and run around and chase it, do whatever else. And um, one of the things I learned was that they could not fly too high over the 5-1 facility because then they'd get picked up by the radar which is the regular military down at Nellis. And then they would have to explain to the regular military what they were doing. So 5-1 exists. I mean, they call it the dark side of the moon for a reason. It does not exist within what you would call the United States. Even Bill Clinton signed an executive order that said Area 51 is not part of the United States. Is You can't apply any of the laws of the Constitution of the United States. Nobody has any rights there. You sign them all away. But there's two separate militaries. And the one guy that really got in a lot of trouble for this was a guy named Gary McKinnon. And Gary started hacking a bunch of military computers to find that we have everything that you see on Star Trek. We have. We have a space fleet. We have a, a Starfleet Federation. Uh, we have gigantic. And, and this is the one other thing besides saucers that I saw out there, myself and my friend John Hadley, <coughs> who was murdered, by the way. Um, we saw a ginormous shuttle. It was 1,600 feet from tip to tail. It was had a blunt shovel nose on it. It was black on the bottom, uh, uh, silver on the top. And this thing was coming in, doing like Mach 25, right over Southern California, right over my house in Hermosa Beach. And um, it was reported on the news. I mean, we turned on Channel 7, and there's Paul Moyer going, uh, uh, Kathy Hutton at the U.S. Geological Survey is calling these sky quakes. Because they were creating uh, 3.5 and, and 4.0 earthquakes on the ground when this thing was coming in. Well, it flew right over our heads uh, of us, you know, at like three o'clock in the morning. We were out, we were out at five one, and it's the only time that the Wacken Hut camo dude security guys ever chased us. We obviously managed to get away because they didn't kill us, but um, uh, because they thought we had video of the ship, which we kind of did, but it looked like the inside of somebody's stomach. It was real, it was real dark, just some. Uh, it could have been just helicopters. There's a bunch of stuff flying all around it. But um, yeah, years later, I found out this thing was called the USS Grissom and that it had extrasolar capability and could fly all over the universe and all that. And then as part of the Sands of Time books, uh, 
one of the things they started developing at Montauk uh, in the early 60s was a um, later came known as a time runner device, which is a, a device that allows you to uh, uh, teleport anywhere in the universe, anywhere. So, um, and I release the, uh, on the cover of, I, I can't change the graphic here on here, but uh, uh, on the cover of all my books, I mean, I have t-shirts made out of it, is the unified field theory, is the theory that supposedly Einstein came up with when he saw it, he fell over dead. Uh, and they took the theory out from underneath his head uh, in his office at Princeton in New Jersey. And the unified field theory has been used to develop this uh, teleportation, tech, instantaneous teleportation, but uh, also for communications where they have these watches that look like eye watches and they call them G phones, but you can communicate again instantaneously uh, with anyone anywhere in the universe, not just the galaxy, but in the universe. So obviously I can now power, I can use a remote probe on Pluto by using an Xbox controller. I don't have to, I don't have to have, have a time delay of however many minutes it takes to get from here to there. So, um, but with the development of the time runner tech and our ability to teleport anywhere in the universe, that made us single-handedly one of the most powerful races in the galaxy. And this is what then got the attention of the great houses and uh, why we're viewed as such a threat and why they started to attack us. Now, and let me give you one other thing of this. Now, is there a game Gary McKinnon out there that proves everything I'm saying? Vladimir Putin stood up on a stage with Donald Trump. You didn't hear a thing one about this. It was on Russia Today, and it was in Russian. And Donald Trump's at the other side of, other side of the stage. He's got an interpreter thing in his ear uh, at a podium. And the quote from Putin is, Mr. Trump, in your time as president, before you leave the presidency, you must tell people the truth about what you know about 9-11. Also, that we were in contact with 27 alien races three of which are actively trying to destroy us and those three oddly enough were the elegin or the sumerians uh the Draconians, and uh an interdimensional racer species which is it's just kind of it's a, it's a tenth dimensional race but it's a a little uh unclear as to where they come from or who they are now remember that 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 roswell was um we learned that the, that the Roswell crash, there were actually three ships involved in the Roswell crash. The first one exploded. Uh, the second one fluttered down and crashed outside of Corona, of which there was one survivor who turned out to be kind of a, a robot who would only speak to General Nathan Twining's uh, secretary, uh, Matilda McElroy. She actually has a book called The Alien Interview out there. And um, a third ship, which apparently pulled a switch, and uh, managed to uh, jump through time, 10 years in time. Now, Philip Corso wrote about this third ship and actually 10 years later knew it was going to crash, met the being there, communicated with it using a, a kind of a brain band of some kind and allowed it to fix a ship and uh, fix its ship and get away. Now, the reason all this stuff was happening in, in Roswell and around New Mexico is because we'd used atomic weapons to open big gaps in the time-space continuum. And opened up a, a hole in the fence, if you will, which had been put up according, originally in the time of Enoch. And Enoch talks about the fallen sons of God and that Yahweh, the commander, puts this big fence up around the planet, not only to keep them in, but to keep anybody else out. And we've been blowing holes in that fence, but it's also why we've been isolated, which is my book. <laughs> Sands Time 1 and 2, 
You have the third book of the series, which is called, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> it's called the Isomer Protocol, which is the uh, the isolation memorandum, where uh, basically the aliens are saying, no, we think you're disgusting, you're diseased. Even your language is considered a virus in some parts of the galaxy, so we're, we're just keeping you here on Earth. And we broke that by kicking the aliens in the teeth uh, sometime around 2004, which has now allowed us to travel all over the solar system. Uh, and at the end of that adventure, Ted jumps into the time stream. Well, he comes back 18 years later, which is only one year here on Earth because he was in one of the outer rings of the galaxy. And, uh, and that's where I start the Time Runner book. So, you know, Time Runner, uh, part one, part two, or act one, act two, and act three. And I just finished. And then as a break, um, I had this. I had a dossier that was written by uh, by Baron Wilhelm von Ritter Spottenheim, who who liked to be called uh, Baron Fritz. And Baron Fritz was a lover of, and a, a sympathizer and a supporter of the Vrildomen, which are the the and Vril is a is a word they use for the Force. Uh, it's the life force energy that binds the universe together. It's basically gravity, but. These women show up from Zagreb, uh, Sigrun and Frauke and uh, uh, Maria Orsic. Uh, they show up from Zagreb in 1919, and they begin they begin channeling for Adolf Hitler and, and his best buddy Rudolf Hess, and they're channeling a guy named Dietrich Eckert, who is the uh, he's the uh, he's the spiritual mentor. It's, all his nonsense is where Mein Kampf came from, but he was the spiritual mentor to Hess and Hitler, and then one day. And by the way, the Vrildomen would channel naked. I mean, the, the Vrildomen books are fantastic. They've got Nazis. They've got occult ceremonies. They've got beautiful naked women with long hair. They've got aliens. They've got uh, Baron Fritz claims that he's, he saw somebody shoot Hitler in the head and that there's a whole alternative explanation to the latter half of the 20th century. Um, and that he was replaced either by either they, they jumped in the time stream somehow uh, or replaced him with a bunch of doubles or, you know, whatever. So. It's got everything, and it's super popular. It's also very female too, because it's uh, it's very much a love story, and it's it's a book that that women particularly have identified with because they use the real force, uh, the void, if you will, which is the feminine magnetic nature of the real force. To basically, just wrap any man they want around their fingers, and um, uh, so I I just and it said do not publish, you know, warning, and I was like, eh, what the hell, and so I did publish it. And it's, it's creating a huge uh, stir out there. And uh, now I'm finally finishing up with the uh, uh, with the Sumerian War, which is Act 3, and then the Draconian War, which is the Act 4, which may be two books. There's so much of it that it might actually be a, a book 8 and book 9. So, uh, But those are the Sands wow. of Time. Everybody needs to read them. And the, the great thing about it is, uh, for you, Patriot, if you're just starting out, if you, just, if you have no idea as to any of this stuff, you read the first two books, and Everything's in there. Montauk is in there. 5-1 is in there. Uh, the Dulce conflict and why that happened. I mean, it's got it literally uh, jot and tittle, written, wrote. Uh, so many people have read these books like three or four times and tell me that, you know, I see new things every time I read the book because there's just stuff. That's kind well, of I like to do podcasts on books, actually, and it's been quite some time since I've done one. So that might be a great, great uh, way for me to segue back into that. That'd be where you start. So I'll you know, give you an address and I'll send it to you. I'll send you the, the first two at least. So there you Absolutely. go. So what else do you want to know? Well, uh, there's a lot of things I could ask you. How about, why don't we, uh, 
why don't we end because we we brought it up tonight why don't we end with the story about the bermuda triangle and then we can uh, wrap it up and hopefully uh set up a new one well the bermuda triangle is easy the bermuda triangle is uh you had the atlantean civilization which of course is in the atlantic and uh um the continent is destroyed in pieces and uh so it's not just one story it's like every hundred thousand years or so uh sections of the continent would be destroyed until you eventually got to one place kind of in the middle of the atlantic but uh um there's some good books on this actually if people want to read them which is by a, a guy who calls himself phylos the tibetan and uh phylos the tibetan talks about uh his life in atlantis i think it's a three book series which, which you guys should get get sands of time first uh but Here's the big thing. So the continent of Atlantis had three had three huge pyramids at each end of the continent. And these pyramids are about they're 1,600 feet high. And in the center, this thing would come out, would look like a, a, a multifaceted crystal. And it would open up like a sunflower. And it would then follow the course of the sun, gathering solar energy. And that solar energy was then converted to... Um, energy that was transmitted through the air. It's exactly the system that Nikolai Tesla was trying to pitch us and that he pitched to JP Morgan and said, look, this energy will run through the air. And what they don't tell you about the Tesla system, which I think is the, is the, uh, uh, the greatest champion for the idea is that not only what was it going to remotely transmit power through the air, but you could connect your car into it. You could connect your airplane to it. Um, you know, you could do all kinds of different stuff with it. And uh, uh, and he, he told J.P. Morgan that if you go with what Edison wants to do, within 100 years, you're going to be choking in your own filth. You're going to be – you'll pollute the planet. You'll do all kinds of things. You'll, you'll basically kill yourselves. And uh, J.P. Morgan's exact response, he's chomping on his cigar, laying in bed. And he goes, so you're telling me any idiot can go outside and put up an antenna and get free power? And Tesla's like, yes, wouldn't it be wonderful? It'll be amazing. And he was like, well, puff, puff, where's the money in that? get Edison in here. So they kick out Tesla and Edison says, yeah, I can use Tesla systems uh, to transmit energy through wires. And then we'll work on a step-down transformer, which is my stuff, convert it all into DC. And then that way uh, uh, we could figure out a way to charge people by the minute, <laughs> which is why we have, <clears throat> which is why we have 60 cycles now because it charges people by the, uh, charges people by the minute for electricity whereas the actual uh schumann resonance of the planet is 7.38 so the closer you are to 7.38 the more in tune your body is and the closer you are to 60 uh you get cancer you get diseases you get whatever else and um the great thing about the tesla system what had we gone with the tesla system this energy being transported through the air would have actually put the life force into the cells in the human body so you're also not only talking about um, remote transition of power, but you're also talking about increasing the human lifespan to 400, possibly 600, or the galactic average for a human being is a thousand years. And there's no reason why we shouldn't live a thousand years, uh, except for the fact that a, an aging virus has been released into our DNA, which they're studying at places like, uh, uh, like USC, um, you know, the, the, the old people's school at USC. So, okay, so what were the pyramids? So it got to the point where the Atlanteans got so greedy and were so venal, if you will, and they just wanted more and more and more power, 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 power. 
and that the priestesses that ran these pyramids kept warning people that you don't don't want to take this kind of power because one of the things that is an after effect of the remote transmission of power and energy is it creates these massive electromagnetic fields which warp dimensions. And so what happened is, is that with the three pyramids, the Atlantean continent just winked out of existence. I mean, the edges of it, if you will. And it transported it into a place that's been called the purple dimension. And that what happens is, is that, and by the way, we have photographed this. There have been eyewitnesses to this. But one of the pyramids that sits dead center of the Bermuda Triangle is still wavering back and forth between our reality and the purple dimension. Now, there have been people in airplanes who have been flying along who suddenly you know, are in communication with the Miami Tower, and they said, we don't see anywhere on our radar. And they said, wow, it's weird. Everything's purple here, and there's islands and all kinds of crazy stuff. So that's how we know, you know they call it the purple dimension. But this, this pyramid has been photographed by the space shuttle where it's when it's on this side of the dimensional field, um, it's it manages to gather enough sunlight and it goes and it, you know it powers something and uh sets off a beam which when it hits a human being it, it the first thing it does is short circuit your brain because the first thing that happens to people that disappear in the triangle they go crazy uh they don't know how anything works they start saying daisy um all kinds of weird things start happening and then uh uh and then it goes and then you, you blink out in this other reality now with that being said um, according to Billy Meyer, and if you go and you study Flight 19 and the other things there, uh, there it's a it's a dimensional vortex. Meyer claims that he, with the Palladians in his contacts, went into the Bermuda Triangle and uh, came out on Earth in another dimension. And he took a whole series of photographs, which are very interesting because he took photographs of dinosaurs. He took a, a the face of a brontosaurus. He took a. Uh, 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 pterodactyl uh he took pictures of houses that look kind of like the flintstones but in this other dimension the dinosaurs didn't become extinct they didn't have the meteor and so they literally lived in like this flintstone kind of reality where uh uh you know you use <laughs> you use a baby elephant for a vacuum cleaner or something and uh uh so he took a bunch of photos of these which are really interesting so there you go there's a Bermuda triangle so when it's on this side uh, it creates a beam which zaps people into this other time space. And uh, when it's on the other side, it's relatively harmless. One guy named Ron Brown uh, claims to have been scuba diving and that he scuba dived inside this big pyramid and came out with this big, this thing called the Atlantean crystal, which uh, I don't know if he's still around, but you can look him up and he's got this Atlantean crystal he claims came out of one of these pyramids. So there you go. There's the explanation for the triangle. Along with being I love a it. doorway or dimension to other realities. Wow. That's incredible. All right. I'm glad I asked you that one. Okay. You want to tell the, uh, the time travel, uh, the time machine story this time, or do you want to save it for next time? Whatever you want to do. Um, All right. Well, let's actually, roll with it. You brought it up. So I think folks okay. are curious. I know I'm curious. So tell us about your time machine. Um, okay. <clears throat> um, Megan Bell has a great book called daughter of genius. And uh, she wrote it all about, you know, her, her, her dad, um, uh, uncle Fred Bell. Uh, I call him Uncle Fred because I, I I knew Uncle Fred since I was like five years old, and he worked with my 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 mom and my stepdad, and he was a founding member of the National Health Federation. And so, when I was going to USC, I would go down to his house. He had he had a house on top of a, a dormant volcano 
in uh, Laguna Beach, where he claimed uh, the famous contactee George Adamski used to live back in the 50s and 60s. And um, that with the power of this, he also did lasers. He did lasers for the Moody Blues. He had a whole gigantic sound studio in his, in his house. Uh, he actually took the sound of a Palladian beam ship from the Billy Meyer case and turned it into a musical instrument, which is amazing. We're trying to get you two to do something with it. And um, and so with information, so I, I've been raised with it. As a matter of fact, this medallion I have around my neck is, uh, he says, is an Andromedan piece of technology uh, that creates a standing uh, DNA helix. And uh, I think I got the cancer that I did because they took this away from me for a while. Uh, but he wow. developed this. It's uh, it's got 180. It's got 144 pyramids in each disc. It's got four diamonds in it uh, with a gold bridge. But it has the ability to extend your energy field by maybe 90 feet. And I use dowsing rods. I put it on people and, and I use dowsing rods and show people how it increases their energy field. And I, I can't even get close to them with the dowsing rods because I'm, I'm on the other side of the room. I'm like 90 feet away. Okay, so he starts building a time machine in his backyard. Supposedly with plans that were given to him by Semyaza. Uh, this leads to a big rift between him and Billy Meyer because Billy Meyer says, I'm the only one who's a contactee and I'm the only one that's contacted Semyaza. Even though Semyaza in the contact notes of Billy Meyer says, no, I contacted all kinds of other people, but you know, Billy's just weird like that. So he starts building this time machine in his backyard. Now this thing's four stories high. It's a dodecahedron because it's a big pyramid at the top and a pyramid at the bottom. It's got like a command seat in the middle. It's got a... a um, a skirt around the outside that you can walk on and it's all, you know, there's pyramids pointed at it and the whole thing. And so um, um, we actually, we turned this thing on twice and I used some lumberjack equipment that I had to skimmy up a, a power pole and actually hook this thing up into the city. And both times we used it, 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 <laughs> it blacked out Laguna beach completely. And uh, <clears throat> so the first time, we use it. Literally got a big board. It was it was all Marty McFly, Back to the Future kind of stuff. And I pull the switch on this thing, but the uh, the whole structure looks like it pixelates. It looks like it dissolves from the outside, and it just kind of goes. And then the thing just goes. And then when it came back, it came back from the inside and then outwards. So I mean, I was thrown off my feet because it just there was a compressive wave of this thing coming back into space, and the. Uh, I go and get Fred and he's messed up. I mean, he's got blood coming out of his nose and his eyes and his ears. And, and I managed to pull him out onto the skirt and onto the, uh, actually it's funny because the porch uh, was even with the, uh, uh, with the machine and I dragged him in and uh, I'm like, I'm taking him to the hospital. He goes, no, no, uh, put me in my bed under the pyramid. Cause he had this big pyramid under his bed, which was actually where Megan was born. Interesting enough. And, uh, so he's messed up and I'm getting all kinds of, you know, all kinds of supplies and all kinds of things to mop up the blood and gauze and whatever else is coming out of him. And, and he's like, Sean, come here, come here. And he grabs me by the, he literally grabs me by the chest, by the shirt. And he pulls me in and he goes, he goes, the future, it's not there. The future's not there. And I was like, okay, okay, okay. So, so, and that pretty much happened both times. One of the things we, we realized, and this is what he got wrong. Um, when you travel in time, you have to, you have to match not only the place you're going, you can do it on earth because earth has a, a morphogenic field that drags you along with it. So for example, if you were to jump up and freeze in space, 
and then jump back down, you would be, oh, my God. I mean, the Earth is spinning at 8,000 miles an hour. You're moving at 17,000 miles an hour through the solar system. That solar system is moving at 20,000 miles an hour around galactic center. Actually, we're, we're rotating around Alcyone in the Pleiades. So there's all kinds of motion that goes on. But you would think that if you just froze yourself in space, uh, that bad things would happen. So um, what we discovered is that you have to match the frequency of time. <laughs> you want to spend any expended time there. So you've got to not only you're merrily, 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 merrily floating down the stream. You, the only way to move up the stream is you've got to kind of park the boat on the shore, which is another dimension, uh, drag the boat or drag yourself up, up the stream and then go from that dimension to jump into the other dimension where you then have to match the flow of the water, which is the vibration or frequency of the water to be able to then travel down the stream again. Uh, the other challenge is you can't really change time because time is an agreed upon construct. So you have to imagine that 8 billion of us on the planet are all holding hands and we're all walk, walking backwards. And as we walk backwards, we're creating our experience of time. Einstein said that Buddhism would be the only religion that would make any sense in the future. And Buddha said, um, an apple is not an apple until you perceive it to be an apple, which is absolutely true. That the future or, or time and space as we know it does not become time and space until we actually interact with it. Now, that time and space will exist for infinity because you can see light and sound. If you and I jumped 10,000 years, uh, light years away and then took a telescope and looked back on Earth, we would see Earth 10,000 years ago. Um, if you stand still in the time stream, all kinds of bad things happen because then the river just begins to build up around you like, like just dropping a giant boulder uh, into the stream. And the way to change time, as I've learned from my work in prophecy and, and predicting future events, is you have a wave that's coming towards the shore. And the only way to stop that wave is you can't just throw yourself into the wave. That's what people think. You can go back and shoot Hitler and suddenly time will change. It doesn't happen that way. That's like saying, I'm just going to take the capstone of a pyramid away and the whole pyramid is going to disappear. No, there's, there's, there's time and circumstance and opinions and spirit that creates somebody like Hitler or Stalin or Mao. And um, <clears throat> so you have to create an equal and opposite wave to then hit that wave you know, before it hits the shore. And the only way to do that is with consciousness. So one of the consciousness things that we had available to us was we had, you know, we had coast to coast. We had our bell back when it was important. And I could create a consciousness wave with a prediction that could either make the prediction come true or be the equal and opposite effect um, of that prediction. So it's a equal and opposite wave. Now, the only other way I can stop the wave is I would have to find uh, a place out in the ocean where a seagull hit the ocean or there were certain winds or whatever else. And I'd have to find a, an exact spot in the ocean and stop that seagull from hitting the ocean or whatever, which would create the wave in the first place. So um, um, anyway, so what Fred saw when he jumped into the future is that he was, he was vibrating in the frequency of, of his now. And then he jumped to then still vibrating at now. And so all he saw, he said it was like being an ant inside a giant blueprint. And what he saw was like, he could see through buildings, he could see through cars, 
He could see everything. He said even light looked like uh, uh, looked like droplets of diamonds. And he could look out over, you know, on the cars on the street and see the light actually, uh, you know, fragmenting. And uh, but he said it was like being inside of a giant uh, hologram uh, that was on the fritz that hadn't been finished yet because we hadn't had a chance to 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 get there. So so there you go. So if you want to go back and change an event in time. Um, and I've been through those time changes and because I'm aware of them and aware of and because of my particularly unique ability for whatever else. Once again, this is not anything natural other than the fact that, you know, I've studied, I've meditated, I've, I've spent the time in caves with, you know, with masters and, and uh, you know, done the things I've done. Uh, but I know that our, our timeline has been, has been savagely altered to the point of where the Nostradamus prophecies do not work anymore. The Edgar Casey prophecies you threw out the window. Uh, even the, the, the real prophecy, which is the prophecy of the Great Pyramid of Giza, which is a prophecy in stone, which I thought was completely infallible and, and unmalleable, even that has changed. So the good news is, is that we're on our own. Um, <laughs> the bad news is, is we're on our own. We're on our own, right? Wow. So there you go. This is, so this has been a fascinating conversation, I have to say. I mean, I, I have to go back and listen to so many of the topics we talked about tonight. It's just an incredible download. So thank you. I just want to, you know, commend you for all of your work. And I just want to let everybody uh, know that what is it, strangeuniverseradio.com. Again, that's the best place that you can purchase Dr. Morton's book so that Amazon doesn't have to take a chunk out of it. Strangeuniverseradio.com. I'm gonna put the link in the description. And, uh, you know, there are so many topics that I want to ask you about, Dr. Morton, that hopefully you'll come back for another interview. We can discuss, uh, you know, go into more detail with portals and teleportation and non-terrestrials and inner earth and, you know, the whole nine yards. I just want to pick your brain on all of it. In the meantime, I'm definitely going to start reading the Santa Time series because I feel like I'm, I feel like I got a lot of catching up to do here. Well, just, you know, if you <laughs> but, read book, uh, book one and book two, it's all, it's all there. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Well, um, anything you want to say uh, before we part ways today, for, uh, just to let folks know anything more about your work or where they well, can find any more information about you? It has to do with consciousness. It has to do with, you know, taking a vow to constantly work for the for the enlightenment of all sentient beings, which is what, uh, you know, the Dalai Lama talks about, which is what Buddhists talk about. And uh, you have mottos for great civilizations. Uh, you have uh, know thyself, which was the Greeks. You have uh, the Romans were to thine own self be true or Pax Romana. Um, if the great American civilization was be, was to be described in the future, it'd probably be more is better. If I just had more or something, it'd be better, which isn't really true. And the Maya, who really had it figured out, uh, the motto for their civilization is all is one, life has purpose, God is love. And if that's true, then all is one means that you are I and I am you and we are all together and I am the walrus and that there's no difference between us other, other than the fact of the illusion of our separateness, which is, which is also part of our power. And if you want to know the key to all the abductions and all the breeding experiments and everything else, you just have to know that the, the more devolved races or species in the universe are in awe of us as humans, because we have the ability for creativity and independent thought. And we are our own universes and the center of our own universes within that. If life has purpose, then that means that if you woke up this morning, you got something to do. You have a purpose to your life and to your existence. 
and that um, you know everything is connected that way. And if and if God is love, then that means that the prima mobile, the very first thought of creation in the universe, is that uh, is the highest power and the highest, fre highest frequency is love. We're all brought into existence by it. We're all uh, we're all sustained by it. Uh, and just remember that uh, you know if you just love each other. That really is. I mean, I hope maybe the uh, maybe the motto and the the anthem for the world at some point in the future won't be imagine. It'll be all you need is love. So there you go. Beautiful. Amen to that. All right. Well, thank you everybody for listening. I'll be back soon with another report. Make sure you check out the links in the description. And thank you for listening. God bless and Godspeed. Patriot out.